Welcome to episode 84 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast and the HP Lovecraft episode. You could also call this one the HP Lovecraft was a proud boy episode and not be too far off the mark. We're going to get into that very loaded statement in part two of this episode, as I believe Mr. Lovecraft held some pretty shitty views, in my opinion, for sure, but you'll see. Does that detract from or lessen Lovecraft's title as father of modern horror? Yes, I believe so, a little bit. I've been seeing H.P. Lovecraft in a new and revealing light lately, so we're going to talk about it, all right? We'll talk about it a bit. Before we get to all the Lovecrafting, let me say welcome to Diabolical and Deadly December. Yes, it's another month of horror, paranormal, and all-around spooky content on the Bobcast. I'm kind of wondering, should I just switch to a full-on horror and paranormal-themed podcast with the Bobcast all the time? What do you think? Let me know. It'd be great. Let me know. The only reason I think I wouldn't do that is because I'd have to drop some of the other stuff that I talk about, like racial justice issues, politics, a little bit, the little bit that I dabble in politics, and the music stuff, and that'd be big for me. I don't know if I want to do that or not. Eh, whatever, I guess I can always come at it from a little bit of a different angle, something like that, or I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Every other month is pretty much horror and paranormal themed. Give me some feedback. That's what I'm looking for, so please let me know. Well, here is what's coming down the chimney at you in this diabolical month of December. First up is this episode. We're talking about H.P. Lovecraft and his racism. We're taking a very specific look at the racism, kind of xenophobia, that kind of thing of H.P. Lovecraft. Next up after this episode is an interview with the author Paul Tremblay, who is an incredible author. A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, The Cabin at the End of the World. Those are some of his more well-known novels. Plus, he's got a brand new novel that came out not too long ago called Survivor Song. And there's also a short story collection that I've been reading of his titled Growing Things. And Survivor Song is fucking gnarly. He had like a kind of partial premonition as far as what was going to happen with COVID in 2020 in some ways. That's all I'm going to say. Listen for more in the Paul Tremblay episode. Paul Tremblay, I will say this. He's a very sneaky author. Does he write kind of these supernatural horror stories? Or are these stories thrillers with some kind of rational explanation of what has been going on in the book at the very end of everything? Well, I would suggest you read his books and listen to the interview to find out, because that is one of the questions I'm going to be asking him. Where are you coming from, Mr. Tremblay, in your writing? He's an incredible writer. And all those books I mentioned, buy them, check them out at your library, borrow them from somebody that has them. They are truly incredibly great books. After the Paul Tremblay interview, it's time for round three of the Ghost Stories series of episodes where you're going to get six new chilling tales of otherworldly encounters from all kinds of folks, people in bands, paranormal investigators, and even Santa Claus himself might stop by with a tale, as that is going to be out on December 21st, the first day of winter, and also very close to Christmas. Santa might be out doing his rounds and stopping by with a story for you. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. After the Ghost Stories episode, we have the Christmas special. Yes, this Christmas special is very special. It's all about Krampus and some other kind of Christmassy topics. The very last episode of 2020 of Diabolical and Deadly December 
is the end of the year, best of, worst of 2020. In other words, the airing of grievances episode. Yes, I'm going to read my shit list that I've been compiling all year of people that have wronged me. And it's a really long, actually, it's not that long at all. And it's, I don't even know if I'm going to do that yet, but it is slightly Festivus related. You shall see. Definitely stay tuned. Got some great stuff coming your way December of 2020, the last month of this fucking godforsaken year, 2020. Thank Cthulhu. Praise him for he has risen. Well, in this Lovecraft episode, at least, yes, Cthulhu has risen. So let's talk a little bit about HP Lovecraft. My introduction to HP Lovecraft happened when I was around 12 years old, I believe. A friend of mine owned several Lovecraft books. I saw them sitting on the floor of this very messy kind of preteen bedroom. What are these? Who's HP Lovecraft? It sounds kind of pornography-ish. In some ways, por- pornish? I don't know. There were strange looking and monstrous things on the covers of these books. Honestly, I was I was like, Lovecraft? But wait, they're mon- Oh, this is weird. My friend told me no. Lovecraft wasn't like some kind of letters to the editor penthouse kind of situation. They were horror stories. Lovecraft writes scary and weird stories. Now, at that time, I was very heavily into Dungeons and Dragons, and I had by then read all the Tolkien books, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Silmarillion. I read, I believe, most of Lloyd Alexander's book series at that time. The guy he wrote, The Black Cauldron, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia were all books I had read, and I was into Conan the Barbarian via comic books. And Conan was created by Robert E. Howard. And that's kind of a tie-in to this here. Howard was very, very influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. In fact, they were friends. So my point is, really, these Lovecraft books I saw on the dirty and messy floor of my pal back when I was in junior high when I was around 12 definitely seemed something that I would be into. So I borrowed a couple of those books from my friend. And I got to be honest with you, when I was 12 years old, I really didn't get Lovecraft. Lovecraft writes in a fairly archaic and kind of gothic style. He was very influenced by formal British writers such as Lord Dunsany. Not an easy read for a 12-year-old kid, but then again, neither was Tolkien, I believe, in some ways. I did barrel through those books. I borrowed them. I even gave my big book report of the year in 7th grade English on The Call of Cthulhu. I remember I got quite a reaction when I quoted this line from that story There was a bursting as of an exploding bladder, a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish, a stench as of a thousand open graves, and a sound that the chronicler could not put on paper. Lovecraft, he was very good at describing things in a very nasty sort of way, I do believe. Very good with adjectives. Yeah, that's Lovecraft, I do believe. My initial takeaway on Lovecraft, I liked the gross-out factor of some of the stories, But I didn't really understand kind of the less straightforward elements that are present in a lot of his stories. Well, fast forward to when I was in my early 30s, an older and much more well-read Bob decided to revisit the stories of H.P. Lovecraft, as I had through the years kind of gathered every book that I could find by Lovecraft. That time around, when I was in my 30s, I got it. I fucking devoured every single Lovecraft story that I could find that I had It's really hard to describe how I felt at that time about the stories and writings of H.P. Lovecraft. 
when I revisited them with kind of new eyes and a more experienced mind. I came to the conclusion that Lovecraft was the master of horror fiction. Now, keep in mind, at that point, I had read probably, I don't know, seriously, maybe a thousand different books of sci-fi, fantasy, history, all different types of books. Definitely a focus on sci-fi and fantasy and some horror books mixed in, Stephen King specifically. No one that I had read up to that point could do what Lovecraft did. I think some authors have gotten close. Many have tried, most have failed, that kind of thing. And that's why I think Lovecraft is called the father of modern horror. He literally created an entire genre of fiction in his own way. The stories of Lovecraft dredge up feelings of kind of looking over your shoulder, just terror, mind-numbing fear, being all alone in the universe, just this cosmic aloneness and insignificance, and that cosmic insignificance plays so much into our primal fears that we're nothing, we mean nothing in the grand scheme of things. We're only here for a blip for a second, and when we're gone, it's like we weren't even here. We don't fucking matter. Those type of emotions come through very strongly for me in the works of H.P. Lovecraft. I would even say I don't think I've ever read another author that brings out such strong emotions in me as Lovecraft does. I think Stephen King has gotten very close, especially this book, the Stephen King novel Revival. That book will fuck you up. It fucked me up for a really, really long time. I can't even really tell you what Revival is about. It's a trip. You should read it. It's a fucking fantastic book, and that ending will fuck you up for, I'm thinking, probably the rest of my life. Very insignificant feeling and uh, terrified of everything after I read that one. So my point here is, really, the second time around with Lovecraft, that's when I did become a devotee, an acolyte of the weird, so to speak. But I did notice something reading through those stories a second time that I don't think I caught the very first time around. There is this element of shittiness from H.P. Lovecraft. His way of describing certain characters of a less than reputable nature, let's just say as swarthy-looking foreigners. Uh, his descriptions of Asian people as squinting Orientals Worst of all, from the story Herbert West Reanimator, which the movie series Reanimator is based on loosely, his description of a black male boxer. It goes like this. He was a loathsome, gorilla-like thing with abnormally long arms, which I could not help calling forelegs, and a face that conjured up thoughts of unspeakable Congo secrets and tom-tom poundings under an eerie moon. Like, Wow! Man, Lovecraft, you're racist as fuck, dude. Holy shit. And I do remember one very specific occasion of reading something of Lovecraft where I go, wow, he is fucking racist. Like, what is up with this dude? That story was The Rats in the Walls. The name of a cat that appears in that story is N-Word Man. I'm not going to say the whole word, and this is going to come up a couple times in this, because Lovecraft did not have a problem throwing that fucking word around every once in a while. Now, by the way, N-Word Man was also the name of Lovecraft's cat in real life when he was around nine years old. Okay, well, Jesus Christ, we're going to talk more about Lovecraft's racism in part two of this episode after we get to know a little bit more about him in part one. 
this is a huge subject, and this is one that I've hesitated to cover for a very, very long time. Since I started this podcast, really, I've wanted to talk about H.P. Lovecraft. I never quite knew how to tackle it until now. Some kind of recent revelations on my part and realizations about certain things and about the way to approach this subject, especially the racist aspect of who Lovecraft was and how he viewed things. I think that's a very important thing to look into and talk about as a fan of horror, as a huge fan of horror fiction in particular, and H.P. Lovecraft. It's very important to get a whole picture of who he was and really to talk about the racist aspect of the man himself. One other thing, too, I just read the book Lovecraft Country, and that played into doing this episode in many, many ways. I owe that book a debt of gratitude, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode, too. So like I said, part one of this episode is some background in the history of H.P. Lovecraft. Part two is going to be pretty much just commentary and information on the racist aspect of Lovecraft. That way you're going to get kind of a full measure of the man and his views, plus his story, kind of a full spectrum view of H.P. Lovecraft. Though short, maybe I'll do more on this subject in the future. I don't know right now because it's big. There's a lot to talk about. This one's going to have to do it for now. Well, let's talk about the music of this episode. The music in this episode was provided to me by the band The Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. You guessed it. They are a Lovecraft-themed band from British Columbia, Canada. The name of the band actually comes from a line in the H.P. Lovecraft tale, The Tomb. And this is it. I will tell only of the lone tomb in the darkest of the hillside thickets. Well, thank you, Wikipedia, for giving me that information. And what a band. Kind of more rock and roll, a little less punk rock than the usual Bobcast fair. But still, this band writes some damn good songs. Now, you heard a song already by them. The very first song at the beginning of this episode was titled Nair Lothotep or Appendix Nair Lothotep. That is from the record The Shadow Out of Tim. Right after this intro part is the song Shoggoth's Away. That'll get you in the mood for all things Lovecraft, I believe, as a Shoggoth is a monstrous creature from Lovecraft's fiction. Kind of a giant amoeba-like creature that was created by the primordial ones, or elder things, yes, just to clear that up, yes. In between part one and part two is the catchy little number, A Little Late, and that is an extremely catchy song, absolutely a great song. And then the very final song of this episode is titled Arachnotopia. Yes, this band absolutely does rule. They have tons of releases out. There will be Bandcamp links on this episode's page of the Bobcast website. And one more thing before we really get going here. It is time for the Diabolical December... Beer of the Episode... The very first beer of the episode during Deadly December is the Stout Who Cannot Be Named from Plan 9 Alehouse. That's a very appropriate name for this uh, Lovecraft episode, don't you think? I think, though, it's a reference to Harry Potter, right? Isn't it? What's his name? Voldemort? Wasn't he he who cannot be named or should not? Well, whatever. It's a great sounding name for this episode. We're going to leave it at that. This beer is a 8.66% alcohol by volume Imperial Stout. Let's give it a try real quick and see how it does for us. 
Oh, it's strong. Yeah, it's definitely strong. Taste-wise, it's fucking delicious. I love stouts. I love porters. It's a little bitter for a stout. Not bad, though. Like, yeah, no aftertaste. No, absolutely no aftertaste. Very smooth. Very delicious beer. A stout is a very good beer for a cold December night. Yes, Plan 9 Ale House, right out of the ballpark with this one. Once again, absolutely a wonderful, fantastic, and delicious beer. You can also enjoy this beer, this very fine and fortifying beer, by visiting Plan 9 Ale House at 155 East Grand Avenue in lovely downtown Escondido, California. You can call Plan 9 Ale House at 760-489-8817 or visit them on the web at www.plan9alehouse.com. Now, I have to say this. Today, when I'm recording this, it's December 5th, 2020. On December 6th, 2020, everything's supposed to get shut down again due to COVID. So, Plan 9 may not be open after tomorrow for outside dining. They have a whole very nice outside dining area. It's awesome. It's great. They may not be able to use that when the shutdown comes again. And it doesn't, when the shutdown starts, it doesn't look like it's going to end until the new year or damn close to it. So be aware, call Plan 9 first if you are going to visit there or go on the web, see if there's any information there. I would highly recommend calling them to check their hours, etc. It is, if you're in the San Diego area, it is definitely a worthwhile trip to check out their beer and food. They have a ton of great records and toys and hot sauces that they make in-house clothing snack food non-alcoholic drinks as well plan nine and the owner of plan nine aaron they are really all going out of their way to do everything they can to get people to come in and he's doing some awesome rad stuff him aaron and everyone who works there are working extra hard to get you to come down to plan nine and check them out have a beer have a little food buy a record, buy a toy. He's got all the Super 7 figures that I want, and it takes everything in my power not to spend the money that I don't have to buy one every time I go in there. So, yeah, check out Plan 9 if you can. Support small business. They are one of my favorite places, owned by one of my favorite people around. Absolutely a great place. Very highly recommended by Bob of the Friendly Neighborhood Bobcast. So let's do this. Here we go. Let's listen to a song and get to part one of the episode here is the darkest of the hillside thickets with the song Shagoss Away. Please stay tuned.
Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born on August 20th, 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island, to Winifred Scott Lovecraft, his father, and Sarah Susan Lovecraft, the Phillips, his mother. When H.P. Lovecraft was two in April of 1893, his father was committed to Butler Hospital in Providence, an insane asylum. In those days, being committed to an asylum was pretty much a death sentence. Lovecraft Sr. did die in that hospital of syphilis-related causes five years later in 1898. His death certificate listed general paresis as cause of death, which in those days was synonymous with late-stage syphilis-related causes. H.P. Lovecraft says his father died of falling into a paralytic state due to being overworked, which I don't believe was true. H.P. Lovecraft's father was a traveling salesman who most likely contracted syphilis on the road with extramarital dalliances. Bad lad, Lovecraft Sr., bad lad, bad boy. The young Lovecraft was raised by his aunts, his mother, and his grandfather, Whipple Phillips. Grandfather Whipple was, in Lovecraft's words, the center of his entire universe after his father Winifred Lovecraft's hospitalization. Whipple became a father figure to the young Lovecraft, though his grandfather would travel on business often in the days shortly after Lovecraft and his mother moved into the ancestral family home. No problem, Lovecraft and his grandfather maintained correspondence by letters when he was out. Now, wait a minute. Lovecraft was only two or three years old then, right? Yeah, H.P. Lovecraft could read and write at the age of three very proficiently, I should add. What a child prodigy. Holy crap. Whipple inspired the young Lovecraft to read and appreciate literature such as Rime of the Ancient Mariner, Ovid's Metamorphosis, and classic Gothic novels. Here's where some of the inspiration for the future father of modern horror comes in. Lovecraft's maternal grandmother, Robbie, died in 1896. That led to the young Lovecraft having regular nightmares, which would influence his later writings. Lovecraft wasn't close to his maternal grandmother, but seeing his mother and his aunts walking around all in black mourning dresses terrified him and is one of the things that Lovecraft himself said led to those nightmares. He was five and a half years old when that happened, by the way. So seeing these women in black roaming around the house, grieving and wailing combined with the books Whipple Phillips turned him on to, that set the stage for the horrific and fantastical writings of his later years. Or not so later years, because check this out, when Lovecraft was seven, he began writing poetry based mostly on Roman and Greek myths. Seven years old. I have a seven-year-old, and he has a hard time writing letters to Santa. Imagine being a seven-year-old kid and writing poetry based on Greek myths and stuff. Holy crap. Again, I think Lovecraft was a total, like, child prodigy. By the year 1900, the family fortunes were dwindling due to the poor business dealings of Whipple Phillips. The family had to fire the help. Oh, dear. God, no. Oh, no. Not the help. No more servants in the Phillips Lovecraft home. Poor kid, huh? Yeah, the, those are the breaks. Shit, I had a hard time paying my fucking rent this month, so I don't feel sorry for him. Whipple Phillips's largest business venture flopped in 1904, and within months, he had died of a stroke at the age of 70. That led to Susie and H.P. Lovecraft moving out of the large family home into a very small duplex, and this is where Lovecraft starts to break down at a very young age. 
He calls the years after his grandfather passed and when he had to move from a mansion to a little duplex as the darkest of his life and that he also saw no point in living anymore. Lovecraft had started high school in 1904 and it was around that time that he started writing strange fiction. Stories like The Alchemist and The Beast in the Cave were written around 1904 when Lovecraft was 13 or 14 years old though neither of those stories got published until more than 10 years later. Those years saw Lovecraft have a series of nervous breakdowns and other mental collapses, which led to him dropping out of high school. He had planned on attending university after high school, but he never followed through and never did go to college. Some high school is what Lovecraft would have had to have put on any job application these days where you're asked about education. And it's funny too, isn't it? A person who didn't graduate high school who would end up going on all these crazy racist rants later in his life. That sounds a lot like Facebook, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Between 1908 and 1911, not much is known about what Lovecraft was up to, though his apparent anxiety and depression seemed to get much worse in those days. Letters from Lovecraft began appearing in pulp and weird fiction magazines, kind of in the letters to the editor sections around 1911, and in 1912, a poem was published in a Providence, Rhode Island newspaper, The Evening Journal, titled simply Providence in 2000 AD. Lovecraft was getting published. That was the first thing he ever had published. Oh, great. Oh, awesome. Well, yeah, not really. The poem Providence in 2000 AD is a xenophobic and racist rant. Here are a few lines from that poem. I left the ship and with astonished eyes surveyed a city filled with foreign cries. No word of discourse could I understand, for English was unknown throughout the land. Okay, for context, that poem is about a family who left Providence, Rhode Island to go back to their ancestral home in England due to an influx of foreign immigrations. And the main character returns to Providence years later to survey a city overrun with Negroes, Irish, Italians, Poles, Jews, Turks, Swedes, and more undesirables. The poem is summed up by the last two lines when the protagonist answers who he was when questioned by a Providence local. Last of my kind, alone, unhappy man. My name is Smith. I'm an American. American. Yeah, sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's some MAGA-sounding shit right there. Isn't it? Like, fuck. Man, fuck you, dude. I'm getting ahead of myself. Definitely getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk more about that kind of thing in part two. But you see, very early on, Lovecraft seems to be a racist douche. He really does. In order to avoid getting bogged down in minutia on this kind of background and history of Lovecraft, let's speed through the next several years. Lovecraft's mother Susie is committed to a mental hospital in March of 1919, the same hospital in which his father died back in 1898. She died of a botched gallbladder surgery in the hospital in the year 1921. That was a crippling blow to the 30-year-old Lovecraft. Again, he had a mental breakdown, and he states that there is no reason he should continue to live. All the while, though, Lovecraft has been writing. Stories like Beyond the Wall of Sleep, The Doom That Came to Sarnath, those were written in 1919. The Cthulhu Mythos were born in 1920 and 1921, with the 1920 poem Nair Lothotep and the 1921 short story The Nameless City. Lovecraft got married to Sonia Green in 1924, the only marriage of his life. They had no children, 
and Green essentially supported the aspiring writer through the course of their relationship. Sonia Green was also a writer and met Lovecraft at an amateur press convention in Boston in 1921, by the way. The couple lived in Brooklyn, New York during the marriage, though Green went to Ohio for work after her hat shop business in New York failed, and that left Lovecraft to lurk in a small apartment by himself, poking his head out the window to hate on the random foreigner passing by. Yes, indeed. Lovecraft hated New York. He moved back to Providence, Rhode Island in 1926. It appears that Sonia Green and Lovecraft were only married for two years, and they didn't even live together the entire course of the marriage. Sonia Green and Lovecraft never actually divorced either, as Lovecraft did not ever sign off on the divorce papers, though he said he would do that. Green did remarry in 1936 in California, thinking that she was divorced. So here you have this kind of kind of a weirdo dude, a racist, xenophobic. That was Lovecraft. That was definitely Lovecraft. So Lovecraft is back in Providence, and he is writing like crazy. The case of Charles Dexter Ward, At the Mountains of Madness, and The Dunwich Horror are written after the author's most untriumphant return to Providence, though he didn't see any real commercial success from those or any of his other writings. Here's an example. The Shadow Over Innsmouth was published in 1936, but only 200 copies were actually bound into book form to be sold, and about half of those were destroyed because they didn't sell. Also in 1936, Lovecraft's health begins to deteriorate, which he attributes to having the grip, an old-fashioned way of saying you had the flu or influenza. By early 1937, Lovecraft, who hates doctors, finally visits a doctor who diagnoses him with cancer of the small intestine. On March 15th of 1937, H.P. Lovecraft dies. He was 46 years old, penniless, and in constant pain. He didn't even have his own headstone in Swan Point Cemetery of Providence, Rhode Island until 1977. That was when fans paid to have a headstone erected with Lovecraft's name, his birth and death dates, and the words, I am Providence inscribed upon it. Relatively unknown in his time, it wasn't until, I would say, the 1970s that Lovecraft and his writings became well-known, which led to much discussion about Lovecraft's views on race and culture, and that's what we're going to talk about in part two in just a moment. For now, here's another song by The Darkest of the Hillside Thickets titled A Little Late. Stay tuned. I know I said that I would be around 
Let's hear it for Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. They write some seriously catchy songs. Really a great band. Truly great. Now you've learned a little of Lovecraft's history, his backstory, a tiny bit of it anyway. Let's get to the more controversial aspects of his life and writings. I mentioned a few little snippets back there regarding Lovecraft and his racist and xenophobic views. That first published poem? That was quite a poem, wasn't it? Oh, there is more. Oh, there's a lot more. There sure is. My introduction to Lovecraft, his xenophobia, and his racism came via his stories. I would say initially, the cat N-word head? Uh, the descriptions of strangers and foreigners as dark, swarthy-looking, untrustworthy Portuguese, Italian, Spaniards, Jews, whatever. It's all right there in the stories. And it is a shock when you read it. Like, whoa, what the fuck, dude? Like, why is this here? I didn't ask for a side of racism with my horror story. I really didn't. But there it is. I recently read the book Lovecraft Country, written by Matt Bruff. That is a great book, by the way. It truly is. The brief synopsis of the book is this. A black family in 1950s Jim Crow era America and their experiences with institutionalized and systemic racism and cosmic and supernatural horror. That's pretty much the book in a nutshell. There are several stories in the book. They're all interconnected. I do highly, highly recommend that book. It's a great read. However, I do have my issues with that book. Like I said, they are stories of an American family, a black American family in the 1950s and their experiences with racism and supernatural horror that was written by a white man. Okay, that's okay, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I kind of have a little bit of an issue with that. It's kind of like an outside looking in kind of situation. It is, here's my question. Is it the place of a white man to write about what black people encountered when dealing with the racism of other white men in 1950s America? I mean, I don't know. The book really struck a huge chord with me about how fucked up things were back then. It was all pretty much historically accurate, except for the supernatural stuff. And the real horror in that story is that systemic and institutionalized racism, not the monsters, right? I don't know. I, I Maybe I'll go back and we'll do a Lovecraft Country episode, talk about the show, which I'm going to be watching pretty soon, hopefully, and the book and get a little bit more into that. But there was something in that book that hit me very, very hard. And that was a reference to one of H.P. Lovecraft's poems. And that poem was titled, On the Creation of... N-words. Okay, that word again. This poem was written in 1912, and it's generally accepted as being written by Lovecraft, though there are some people who question whether or not he actually wrote it. I am one of those people that think he probably did. It's a short poem, so I'm going to read the whole thing to you real quick. When long ago the gods created Earth, in Jove's fair image man was shaped at birth, the beasts, for lesser parts, were next designed, yet were they too remote from humankind. To fill the gap and join the rest to man, the Olympian host conceived a clever plan. A beast they wrought in semi-human figure, filled it with vice, and called the thing an N-word. Ah. Does that poem make you angry? It makes me fucking angry, very angry, and mostly what it makes me angry about 
is the fact that I've been reading Lovecraft for close to 40 of my 51 years. Uh, that I've gotten super into Lovecraft, love his writing, love his books. I love the tons of different things that have been inspired by his stories and the Cthulhu mythos. We're talking music, video games, TV shows, movies. Lovecraft's tentacles have a very long and grasping reach. And honestly, I feel dirty for having consumed so much of this horrible man's works and related works. <sighs> it's rough. Let's move on to the letters of H.P. Lovecraft and some of the content of those letters before we get to the discussion about how I feel personally about this aspect of him or more on how I feel on this aspect of him. H.P. Lovecraft wrote a lot of letters to people. A hundred thousand of them or more, it is said. These letters contain everything from politics, history, art criticisms, weird fiction-related topics, and surprise, yes, racism. Some of those letters are truly gnarly. Lovecraft, especially in later years, wrote mainly to fellow authors. Let me give you a couple of snippets from a couple of letters. Here are Lovecraft's thoughts on Hitler from the year 1933 in a letter to Vernon Shea. When I say I like Hitler, I do not imply that his is a blindly against the disintegrative forces which more educated and sophisticated people accept without adequate evidence as inevitable. His neurotic fanaticism, scientific adulpatedness, and crude gaucheries and extravagances are admitted and deplored, and of course it is quite possible that he may actually do more harm than good. One can scarcely prophesy the future, but the fact remains that he is the sole remaining rallying point for German morale and that virtually all of the best and most cultivated Germans accept him temporarily for what he is, a lesser evil at a special and exacting crisis of history. Objections to Hitler, that is, the violent and hysterical objections, which one sees outside Germany, seem to be based largely on a soft idealism or humanitarianism, which is out of places in an emergency. This sentimentalism may be a pleasing ornament in normal times, but it must be kept out of the way when the survival of a great nation hangs in the balance. The preservation of Germany as a coherent cultural and political fabric is of infinitely greater importance than the comfort of those who have been incommoded by Nazism. And of course, the number of sufferers is negligible as compared with that of Bolshevism's victims. If what you say were true, that others could save Germany better than Hitler, then I'd be in favor of giving them a chance. But unfortunately, the others had their chance and didn't prove themselves equal to it. Now, keep in mind, that was written in 1933. That was before any of World War II, the Holocaust. I mean, this is even before Kristallnacht in 1937, when that pogrom against the Jews really came into effect and laws were made that really, really targeted the Jewish people of Germany in those days. So H.P. Lovecraft, he's right. He had no way, he didn't even said it in the letter, he had no way of seeing the future and what Hitler would do in the future. But it doesn't sound like he thinks Hitler was such a bad guy at the time, kind of a lesser of two evils. So Lovecraft had no way of knowing the future, but 
the writing was on the wall, if you ask me, about where Nazi Germany was going to eventually head, because Hitler did make it pretty plain, his hatred of the Jews, and the fact that he wanted to expand into Eastern Europe for Lebensraum, for living space for the German people. So, if you had any kind of sense at all back then, you'd be like, no, 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 this guy is fucking bad. Lovecraft's like, oh, he's not such a bad guy. I think Lovecraft was a little bit of a nationalist, personally. There is definitely more evidence that paints a picture of Lovecraft as a nationalist in other correspondence and letters, but what I just mentioned, I think that'll do for now. I'm just going to give one more example of Lovecraft's really shitty views from another letter before we move on to the very last part of this episode. This letter is also from the year 1933, or it might have been 1931, okay? Now keep in mind, these letters were written either four or six years before he died. So that's kind of going to be an important little fact in a minute. Here's, here's this quote from this letter. The black is vastly inferior. There can be no question of this among contemporary and unsentimental biologists, eminent Europeans for whom the prejudiced problem does not exist. And I think there he's referring to the institutionalized racism and prejudice and bigotry that existed in the United States at those times. But it is also a fact that there would be a very grave and very legitimate problem, even if the Negro were the white man's equal. Uh, so that is, yeah, pretty much straight up racist. Well, where do we go from here? That's my question. I've given you some samples of Lovecraft's racism in this last part. It's pretty fucking blatant, right? It is. It truly is. For those of you that might think, well, you know, Lovecraft was a product of his time. Everybody thought like that back then. That is absolutely not true. Completely not true. Yes, there were a lot of racists back in those days. A lot of bigots, a lot of people with prejudices, for sure. But Lovecraft was extreme, definitely extremist in his views. He was very loud in his letters about how he felt on topics of race, on foreigners, his very xenophobic views, that kind of thing. There are letters where his literary friends argue with him about how fucking racist and xenophobic he was being. It's kind of like your drunk uncle posting racist bullshit on Facebook. Like, whoa, dude, back up. Do not say that. God, no. And there are letters from his friends saying, no, what you're saying is not good or true or anything like that. So he got called on his shit. It is said that later in his life, Lovecraft's racism was toned down quite a bit and it became more of a socialist. And that's actually true. And he liked Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Okay, that's great. He was still a fucking racist. I did read two letters from the year 1937, though I'm not reading those letters in this episode. That was the year of his death. He was still very, very much a racist the year that he died. Trust me. You can look it up. Google it. It's so easy to find any of this information that I've talked about in this episode. If you just Google Lovecraft and racism or HP Lovecraft racism, it, it will take you straight to many, many articles that go into much more detail about it than I'm going into in this episode. So I would ask this question at this point, where do we go from here? You know, I'm thinking if you're listening, you're probably a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. I would guess, I don't know where to say we're going from here, but I can tell you where I'm going from here. And where I'm going from here, it was a hard one. Honestly, 
because I truly love a lot of the writing and stories of H.P. Lovecraft. I really do. But I think I'm done with him. I really do. The more I look into the words from his letters, the less I can detach him from his work, from his art. H.P. Lovecraft, he was a piece of shit. He really was. Let's count them off with me, okay? Racist? Uh, check. Uh, nationalist? Yep, check. Xenophobic? Oh, yeah, big check there. H.P. Lovecraft, I've come to this conclusion. H.P. Lovecraft was a proud boy. He was a MAGA twat. Can you imagine what he would be doing today? He'd be on Facebook spouting all kinds of bullshit until he got tired of being censored on Facebook and Twitter, you know, saying, oh, they're censoring any people with right-wing views, and now he'd be on Parler complaining to other fucking white supremacist pieces of shit. And his friends, the people that loved him in the literary community, would be like, no, hey, man, like, check it out. No, what you're saying is a bunch of bullshit. You know, it's nationalist, it's xenophobic, it's racist. Don't say that. And, and, you know, by today's standards, he would definitely have toned things down, I'm sure, how all these other MAGA twats sound, right? And these proud boy fucks, these white chauvinist types. He would be saying things like, well, you know, we can't let immigrants in this country. They're stealing all of our jobs. And what about black-on-black crime and all lives matter? It's the same shit, just a different wearing a different face. But it's all the same views. I don't think personally that I can revisit and reread the works of Lovecraft ever again, to be honest with you. The racism is too ingrained in everything he did. In fact, I think in a lot of cases, the racist and xenophobic elements are a huge part of the stories themselves. Shadow over Innsmouth. The Innsmouth look, supposedly the Innsmouth look is a metaphor for interracial marriage. And that, you know, there's a lot of ways to go about this. There are other stories that are much more in your face with the racist and xenophobic views. Quite a few of them, enough to where I'm like, you know what? Eh, I don't need to read any more of his books. Does that mean I'm going to throw away all my Lovecraft books? At this point, no. Am I going to burn them? No, because I don't do stupid shit like that. So there you go. Do with that information what you will. I'm very glad myself that I looked into Lovecraft and his history a little bit deeper for this episode. It's not a happy ending for me. It's not a happy situation. But at least I know the depths of H.P. Lovecraft's depravities. And there we have it. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much to Plan 9 Alehouse for the beer of the episode. A very delicious beer it was. Thanks to the darkest of the Hillside Thickets for the songs. Such a rad band. Please do check them out. There's going to be Bandcamp links on the Bobcast website that'll take you straight to the Bandcamp page for the darkest of the Hillside Thickets. As always, thank you for listening to this history and kind of expose of H.P. Lovecraft. I hope it was educational and entertaining for you. Don't forget, please subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please consider becoming my patron on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash I Want to Party with Bob. I'll leave you with one more song from Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. That song is called Arachnotopia. Here it is. Thanks again so much for listening. <laughs>